You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Scripture is, is complex. It is 66 books, 40 plus authors, three different languages written over thousands of years filled with doctrines and truths that we can grapple with and wrestle with all the days of our life and still at the end of it say, God, I don't understand. It's complex. And yet there are some truths that scripture makes utterly plain. Uh, I remember a couple years ago at the, the last church that Rachel and I planted outside of St. Louis, um, we spent about six months walking from left to right through the book of Leviticus. Um, I, I think I had like a, a bad slice of pizza and uh, just a weird night's sleep and woke up and was like, you know what would be really good and fun? Let's walk through Leviticus. Um, and so we did, and it actually ended up being beautiful. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible at this point in time. Um, but it was like walking through quicksand. Uh, it was like uh, drinking from a fire hydrant. If you've never tried doing that, uh, don't. You'll need to see a chiropractor afterwards. Right? It, w- it was just, it was a lot. And there was a lot to wrestle with. But what Psalm 127 is declaring here is a truth that is found on every page of scripture that is undeniable. The Lord and the Lord reigns. He is sovereign over all things. He controls all things. He is powerful over all things. All things exist through him and are held together by him. Apart from him, as John chapter one says, nothing was made. The beginning, as I just read in Genesis, declares this to be true. In the beginning was what? This is the interactive part of the sermon. Sorry, let me back up and try this again. It's coming. In the beginning was what? And in the darkness was who? God. That was not a trick question, I promise. All right? In the beginning was... God. He was the only thing that was in the beginning. He is the only thing, the only person that is not created. And apart from his action in the world was darkness. The world, the cosmos, everything was without form and void. And then the Lord spoke. And out of nothing came everything that was created. The Lord spoke and nothingness obeyed his voice. Charles Spurgeon has this great quote because he's Charles Spurgeon. It says this, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less 
than God wishes. Every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. The chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered, just as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence, the fall of dried leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. God is sovereign, in control, powerful, working in all things, in the creation of the cosmos and also in the day-to-day life of you and I. And this is what Psalm 127 declares so loudly. The psalmist, likely Solomon, begins and says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. When when the, the Israelites sang this song, when they heard this word house in Hebrew, it probably conjured up a lot of different images. It meant exactly what we hear, house, a home, a dwelling, a structure. And they heard the truth that unless the Lord ordained, willed, carried out, empowered the building of a even simple structure, those who build it labor in vain. I know this to be true because some friends of ours, when they moved down to Georgetown in the summer or in the beginning of 2021, They hired a contractor to build a house. And the contractor said, absolutely, six months and it'll be done. You know what was done at six months? Very little. Eight months go by, still not done. Ten months go by, still not done. They begin to pull every string that they have. They they lean on the contractor. They make calls around for supplies. They look at going with other contractors and other suppliers. And they work and they strive and they struggle. And 12 months goes by and the house isn't done. And 14 months goes by and the house isn't done. A year and a half, almost two years later, the house is completed. Unless the Lord builds the house. Contractors, suppliers, and definitely those people that are paying and waiting do so in vain. But they were probably also hearing the house of the Lord, the temple that they were walking up to, the house of God that Solomon had built, the house that David wanted to build but the Lord said no to. That house would only be built as the Lord willed. And even beyond just a structure, they would have heard house as in household, a family, a people. Like their own people who from one man and one woman, Abraham and Sarah, the entire people of God were built. Unless the Lord builds the house. Those who labor. Those who try, those who struggle, those who strive, and those who wait do so in vain. He alone creates. The psalmist goes on, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. If you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, you've heard of the importance of the walls that surrounded 
cities in the ancient Middle East. These walls kept the inhabitants in, and they kept those that they didn't want inside the city walls out. They would open the gates to the city in the morning, and at night they would close those very gates, and they would station watchmen around the city. And they would watch to see if people tried to get in, and they would also, from those walls, watch what occurred in the city to ensure that peace ruled and reigned. But the truth of the matter is that those watchmen could watch all they wanted. But it was only by the will and power of God that they would be protected and secured. Jerusalem was a city that would be captured and ransacked multiple times. And every time we are told and they were told, unless the Lord protected, it was in vain. It goes on, in vain you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I was just reading a book recently, and it was talking about how historians are unanimous that 90 plus percent of all wars that have ever been fought have been fought over food. Just the ability to sustain ourselves and a people group and survive. I've never lived in the Middle East, but I've gotten to live for the last year in central Texas, and that's what I imagine the Sahara Desert oftentimes feels like. And I couldn't imagine how you could grow anything. And my grass would testify to that truth. And the psalmist says you can toil, you can struggle, you can survive, all of you want. And yet, a farmer knows you can put the plant and the seed in the ground. You can water, you can weed, you can fertilize her, but you cannot control the weather and ultimately you cannot make the seed grow. One of the most prominent and miraculous stories in all of Scripture and in the story of Israel is how as millions of them walked for 40 years in the wilderness, the desert land, the only thing they had to do to get food was go to sleep. Because when they woke up, the Lord provided it for them. They didn't sow, they didn't reap, they didn't harvest, they slept. The Lord gives to his beloved sleep. Because he rules and reigns and he is good. This theme of the Lord ruling and reigning, it builds and builds and it culminates in the coming of God in human flesh, in the form and fashion of Jesus. Paul, when he writes his letter to the church in Colossae, he writes this in chapter 1, this, this song of Christ. He, Christ, Jesus, God in human flesh, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, hear these words, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers 
or authorities, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. We'll get to that more in a moment. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. All things were created by him and by his power. All things were created for him, for his glory. And all things even now are held together by his rule and reign. Psalm 127 says to all of us, the Lord rules and reigns. But it also reminds us that we, you and I, have been invited in to the Lord's ruling over creation. Now, perhaps you've not heard this before. Maybe for some of you guys, you're like, oh my gosh, this guy is preaching heresy up there. But I promise this is exactly what Scripture declares and tells us. Go back again to the creation story. The one where in the beginning God was, where he spoke and all things came to be. Later on in chapter 1, it says this in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now hear this. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion, have rule, reign over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Psalm 127 in all of Scripture leaves no doubt that the Lord alone truly rules and reigns, that he is the ultimate authority. But it also leaves no doubt that the Lord created us and in fact has invited us into the process of him ruling, reigning, creating order and seeing the flourishing of all of creation to work, to cultivate, to multiply and to bring his glory to the far reaches of creation. Again, look back to Psalm 127. The Lord builds the house, but we are called still to labor. Now, if he does not build it, we labor in vain, but the psalmist does not say the Lord builds the house, so do not labor. In fact, it invites us in labor as the Lord builds the house. And what you will see is a good creation. It goes on. Yes, if the Lord does not watch over the city, we stay awake in vain. And yet we are called as he watches over the city to watch, to protect, to lean in, to care for. If you don't believe me, this is exactly what Adam and Eve did not do in the garden in Genesis 3. When the serpent, the tempter, comes and speaks to Adam and Eve, one of the questions we should ask is, how did this thing that utters blasphemies against the Lord, how did he come to be in the garden? The Lord tells Adam and Eve, work it, cultivate it, subdue it, 
Have dominion, protect, see to its flourishing. It goes on. Yes, we are not meant to labor and toil in anxious toil. But after the Lord God led Israel into the promised land, he called them to work the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. One of the festivals, Pentecost, most of the festivals centered around the planting and the harvesting that the people of God did. They did so not in confidence in them, but in him. But he still called them. Take this land which has never been worked. Work it and see as I bless it how it will flourish. And then, of course, he goes on in three through five. and He says, behold. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And that simply means that the gate of the the town is where all of the, the business would be done. And it's also where the trials took place. And so a man with many children would stand even if he was in trial with various witnesses that would be for him. The Lord God says that children are his gift to us. We can't create life. But you better believe we're going to take part in the process. Can I get one amen? Y'all just going to, that's fine. It's in scripture. I, I mean, who did this is one of the kids that said it loudest? Mom and dad, we have some questions when we get home, okay? Right? Like, am I the only one that doesn't go, Lord, I know you make children, but I'm, I'm, you've invited me into the process, right? We have a role to play, right? Thank you for that good gift, right? That's fine. <laughs> give myself a high five for that one and the Lord he has called us into the process he's called us to be his instruments he's invited us in to rule and reign it's why scripture says we were created in his image and to image our God means to do the things that he does And he is a God of creation. He is a God of protection. He is a God of provision. He is a God of family, of relationship. He's a God that parents. And he has called us to do those very same things. Psalm 127 beckons us. To live a life as representatives of the Lord, as ambassadors, as scripture calls us, as stewards of his rule. It calls us to live life faithfully. Faithfully. This means that we carry out his will, living faithfully. It means we carry out his will by his strength, living faithfully. It means we carry out his will by his strength for his glory and yet also for our joy. 
I, I love the phrases sometimes we use, and, and, and they're, they're in, with good intent. Right, but one of the phrases, I call them like coffee cup verses, but a lot of times they're not verses, even though people think they're in Scripture. We talked about one yesterday, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. If anybody knows what that means, or how you can physically do that, come and find me afterwards. I'll buy you a, a cup of coffee or a beer, and you can just draw it out for me. Right, but one of the other ones that is always used is let go and let God. You guys heard that one before? That's a good one, right? Like that's one of the ones that you have in your back pocket when you have a conversation with someone who's just really wrestling and you're like, I don't know what to say. And you're like, let go and let God. No, is that just me that does that? Okay, that's fine. It means well, right? There's a call there to, to not grasp things too tightly to recognize that the Lord himself is in control of all things. But the Lord hasn't called us to let go and simply drift back. The Lord has created humanity with a purpose. Uh, I I remember saying this one time, uh, I love C.S. Lewis, love all of his books. Like every year we'll read through at least a couple of his uh, books and, and typically all of his fictional books. And uh, the, one of my favorite chronicles of Narnia is The Last Battle, the very last book. It, it has this beautiful depiction at the end of, of maybe what C.S. Lewis imagines the end times to be like, when, when the Lord comes back, when, when glory is ushered in. And I remember talking to my kids after reading this one time and just talking through what, what eternity is going to be look like Uh, what it's going to look like. And I remember saying to them, hey, did you know that we're going to work in glory? And this was my kid's response. What? (laughs) Like they were were like, uh, up to that point, they were like, oh man, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. It's going to be awesome. Streets of gold, adventures, right? That just uh, uh, beauty everywhere. No more sickness, death. We're going to work? Like, yeah. And it's going to be awesome. How? I don't know. But it's the Lord. He'll do it. But we were created for a purpose. This purpose. We will in eternity, hear this, rule with him over perfection. Even better than Eden. So, if this is what we've been called into, if the Lord truly rules and reigns, and we have been invited into ruling and reigning alongside of Him, then it's right to ask the question, so why aren't we doing it? Or or maybe another way to ask the question is, why does Psalm 127 sound so much like a correction then? And the answer is, because that relationship the Lord God as truly ruling and reigning in us as his representatives has been marred deeply by the fall. Again, in the creation account, now in chapter 3, the serpent comes and says to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The Lord rules and reigns. We've been invited to walk with Him, and it should be a great blessing and honor, life-giving joy, and yet, we struggle to live in that relationship because of the presence of sin. Now, like our first parents, our inclination is not to walk alongside of God, not to walk as His representatives, not to be with Him and to take part in His work of ruling and reigning as He shows us what is good and right. Instead, now we tend to determine for ourselves what is right. We tend to determine for ourselves what is good. We tend to seek after control rather than gladly recognizing that the Lord alone is in control. We struggle with Him for power and we doubt that when He leads, that He will lead us in ways that are good. Psalm 127, the admonition of the psalmist that unless the Lord, we live in vain, exists, I think, because of two things. One, we tend to trust ourselves too much. And two, we tend to trust the Lord too little. Maybe another way to put it, we tend to see ourselves as God. And we tend to doubt that the Lord truly is the good and perfect God that he is. These were the temptations that Adam and Eve faced. It's the temptations that all humanity has always faced. The serpent tempted humanity with the reward that they could be God. What I've always found funny in that verse is he himself says, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. What did he say at the end of verse 1 when he created man and male and female? He created them to be like him, to exist in his image. But the temptation, the the reward that the serpent, the enemy, held out was not just to be like him, but that you would be him. That humanity could be God. That they could rule and reign. A temptation that they would be a better God than the Lord was. Now listen, we don't say these things out loud. As Christ followers, we don't walk around saying out loud, oh no, I'm better than God. Oh no, I'm more powerful than God. No, 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 I'm a better parent to my children than God is. We don't say it out loud. We just live moment by moment as if it's true. And if you don't believe me, Just go through a single day of your life. 
How many decisions do we make on a daily basis with no regard for whether or not the Lord desires it or thinks it good, wise, or honoring to him? What's your immediate inclination when something goes wrong? Brandon preached last week, and I wasn't here to hear it, but I was a part of our GC as we discussed it. As he's walking through that psalm and talking about the Lord being a refuge for us. That we are called to be still, to rest, as we see here in Psalm 127, and to know that the Lord is God. We rest and we are still because he is God. But is that your inclination? Because mine, when there's a problem, is the inclination to fix it. And over 15 years of marriage, I've learned from my wife that my inclination to fix the problem is actually better described as an inclination to make the problem worse. No? No one else? No? This is just me. You guys have perfect marriage. Nobody doubts the Lord. I can't get like a single amen. Okay, fantastic. Uh, next week, we will begin going through Leviticus, left to right. Okay? That's how you guys roll? We can roll that way. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's too late. Right? Like, we all have an inclination, and apart from the powerful working of the Spirit, I know this about you without knowing you. Your inclination is not towards the Lord apart from the working of the Spirit. It's towards yourself. It's towards your discipline. It's towards your abilities. It's towards your relationships. It's towards your finances. It's towards your intellect. Or it's towards despair. But any of those inclinations do not testify that the Lord reigns and we have been invited in, that he is God, perfect God, and we are not. But it testifies that we either are God or that he's not a very good God, or oftentimes both. So what do we do with this temptation to trust ourselves? Well, there was this phrase in one of the commentaries I read that I love. It's the term prayerful human weakness. Write that down. If you don't take notes, turn to someone next to you and write it on them. Prayerful human weakness. To overcome this temptation, to see ourselves and the Lord correctly, we need to tune in to who we truly are and who the Lord truly is. And hear this, you on your own cannot see yourself or the Lord correctly. We know the Lord as he allows us to know him, as he empowers the spirit to make his presence known and felt that we might experience, as the psalmist says, to taste and see and to know that the Lord is good. And so we go to him in prayer and we ask, as the psalmist does in 139 that we we read, search me, O Lord. And we say to him again and again, help me to know you. Help me to see you. Help me to live life in front of you. In prayer, the Lord reminds us that we are his beloved children. 
that we have been invited into his presence, that we have unfettered access. Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can go boldly into the throne room of God. We're told that he listens to us, that he cares for us, that he cares about what we're feeling and what we're walking through and what we're thinking. And in fact, prayer helps us realize that we are always in his presence. He is not far from any of us. We are indwelt with his presence. Prayerful human weakness, the practice of prayer that shows us our weakness and yet our confidence in him, helps us learn to live in his presence. Prayer is also a great place to learn to be children. Listen, I have five kiddos. They're all amazing and wonderful and an incredible blessing, just as the psalmist says. I will say, one uh, commentator said, uh, before they are a quiverful, children are a handful. Which I thought, that's brilliant. Uh, I have like arrows on my back and a tattoo, and I, next time I'm going to just create a symbol for a handful of children. That's right. Yeah. But we're called, Jesus tells us, to inherit the kingdom is to enter it like little children. Let me tell you something. One of the things that we're bad at as adults is being like little children. Because we're told by the world around us that growing up means being not like a child. When in fact, growing into maturity as Christ followers is becoming more like a child. You know what children do? They demand and they ask. Again and again and again and again. Right? Like in, in our house, we, we, there's no basements in Texas. And so one of the things that that means is that I can hear my kids all the time. And they have learned that because of that, they don't even need to come to where I am. And so our house is like this routine chorus of dad, mom, and us just trying to guess where they are and then figuring out it's just easier to yell back. And so that's mainly our communication. But they just... They know instinctively, as children, I want, I ask mom and dad. I need, I ask mom and dad. I'm hurting, I go to mom and dad. I have a bad dream, I go to mom and dad. My kids, none of them, have ever come to me and said, hey dad, listen, I've been thinking a lot about finances and I'm not sure where our next meal is gonna come from. Now listen, that's a good gift from the Lord because I know that there are people that have struggled and families that have experienced that. But children inherently don't think about that. They are not inherently thinking about whether or not your job is going well and whether or not you'll sustain it. They're not thinking about whether or not they're going to have a bed to sleep in tonight or tomorrow night. And I've learned they're not thinking about whether or not the thing they want to ask for costs a lot of money and whether or not you have enough money to buy it. Even though I've tried to get them to think that way. And the Lord is a better father than we are. And so he invites us. See me as who I am, the all-providing father. A good Abba. Come to me again and again. 
We also learn in prayer that we are weak and in need of the Lord. This is why we confess. Listen, I've said this before, but if I ask you the question, who in your life has most disappointed you? And if anyone other than yourself pops into your head, I have to tell you, you're wrong. No one has disappointed you as much as you have disappointed you. That's the nature of being a fallen, sinful person in a broken world. And getting a good look at the frailty and feebleness, the brokenness of our flesh. When we see Jesus correctly, will send us running towards the Lord rather than away from the Lord. Prayerful human weakness. Let me end here. The reason that I know that this is the solution is because this is how our Lord Jesus lived. Jesus was the most powerful human that ever lived, ever existed. Authority over demons, with the touch of his hand or simply a word spoken by him. The blind received their sight, the mute began to talk, the deaf began to hear, the lame began to walk. He raised people from the dead. The most powerful human ever to exist and also, if you look at his life, the most dependent man that ever lived. By his own mouth, Jesus himself said, the Son can do nothing apart from the will of the Father. After the beginning of his ministry, the most successful day of healing, ministry, religious experience that ever existed in all of humanity, Jesus goes out and he gets alone to be with his Father. Because he needed the Father. He'd existed from eternity in perfect utter relationship and dependence on the Father. And he invites us into that same life. The Lord rules and reigns. We have been invited into that process to rule, to oversee creation, to work underneath of his good authority. And even though Sin has marred this relationship by the power and the spirit of Christ Jesus through the gift of prayer. God can and will restore. Let's pray.